As we mentioned last night, we've talked about some very big theological themes. We've talked about prophecy, the great controversy, this battle between good and evil. We've talked about how the Lord is dealing with that battle and how he wants to not only destroy Satan, but save sinners. We've talked about how Jesus is coming soon and there's going to be a sign of loyalty. That is obedience to his Ten Commandment law versus disobedience, which is the mark of the beast. And we've talked about all of those things. And then last night, we began talking about just a couple of things that are practical daily issues of Christian living. And we talked about last night what goes in your body, that the Bible specifically outlines what things go into your body. From right from Genesis chapter 1, it tells us that this was to be food for you. And of course, after sin, there was an adjustment to that diet. And even after the flood, there was an allowance to that diet. But God had an ideal for how our bodies, the insides of our bodies, were supposed to operate. Because we don't have a soul, we are a soul, and thus physical health and spiritual health are united into one. Does, did that make sense? Was it clear last night? Okay. Now we're going to go to the outside of our bodies and what we do with the outside of our bodies, how we carry ourselves, what do we wear, what kind of, how do we break ourselves beautiful, or do we make ourselves, what? What does the Bible actually say about how we carry ourselves on the outside? Now, I, I referenced an illustration I said I was going to save for tonight, and here it is. The, the young minister, not, not me, this is not some other, this is somebody else, okay, came into the church, he was assigned to this district, they hired him as pastor, and, and, he, and he came to this church and he started preaching Oh, he was full of vim and vigor, just zeal and passion for the truth. And, and he wanted to see a revival. He wanted to see a reformation among the people, a great, a great resurgence of spiritual activity and, and vitality. And from that pulpit, the first, first day he was there, he started preaching. And this was a serious sermon. He, he, saw, he, he, he viewed some of the issues in society, even saw some issues maybe within the church, and he started preaching about how just kind of like we did last night. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he was specifically talking about smoking. It is a bad thing. Do not do it. It should not be a part of the Christian life. It is a foul, evil temptation. It just went on and blasting these people, right? Oh, not too many amens, by the way. Why? Well, the elders came up and talked to him afterwards and said, Brother, now we appreciate that you're young and you're new, but you've got to understand, these people, this is a, this is a tobacco state. And a lot of them work in this industry. A lot of them participate in this activity, and they don't want to hear that it's bad. Talk about something else. I said, well, okay, I don't know what to do. So he's like, all right, you know what? I still want to see this reform go forward. I still want to see this revival and reformation. So the next week he got up and he preached a fiery sermon, not about smoking, but about alcohol. <laughs> And he said, you should not drink. It is a tool. And he started reading some of the same passage. Don't even look at it. Don't even look at it when it's read. Don't offer it to your neighbor. It's unwise to get drunk. Don't be that man. This is, children of God, we should be sober-minded as we're looking. And he just preached away. Wouldn't you know it? Same elders came up and talked to him. Brother, you, shh, now? He said, what? <laughs> you surely can't tell me that I should be preaching to the saints to drink, right? And he said, no, 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 but just don't. You don't have to say you do it, just don't talk about not doing it. The thing is, some of our most influential members own a bar. 
okay? And they're very big contributors. So I'm not saying say it's okay, just don't say it. That just don't say anything about it at all. And he was exasperated at this point. He's like, I don't know what to do. You tell me, what should I preach about? And they thought about it, and they're like, we got it. Preach about witch doctors. He's like, witch doctors? Why? Because there's not one within a 3,000-mile radius of this church. You can preach about them all day long. Right? The point being, everybody likes to hear a big, hard, challenging, Bible-based sermon. Oh, straighten us out on this issue, as long as it's somebody else's issue. Right? It goes back to that old saying, everybody wants to know what the Bible says till they find out what the Bible says. Like, oh, I didn't want it to say that. Right? We can talk about theory all day long. From creation to the second coming, the things that God has done, we can talk about the life of Jesus and the nature of this conflict. We can talk about all this stuff. But when we start landing it at home, okay, and doing things that might step on toes or might be awkward or might be in opposition to a lifestyle that's currently being lived, we've gone from preaching to meddling, right? I have no interest in meddling between you and the Lord. However, I have every interest in simply giving you the biblical information so that you and the Lord can have the right conversation, okay? You can do with whatever you will. This is your choice. I'm not going to force you. I can't force you, even if I wanted to. It's not within my power. My job is not to make converts, but it is to have a conversation that will hopefully lead to conviction, and if you let the Holy Spirit do his work, conversion. Does that make sense? So, in that spirit, we're going to talk about something tonight because, again, we could talk about, like, keeping pure language and having uh, sexual fidelity in your marriage. We could talk about having uh, all these, uh, these good and noble things, and we could talk about financial responsibility, and on and on and on. The list could go, and most of us would sit here and, mm-hmm, 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 agree, right? But I believe the Lord has a challenge for us, each one of us, whether it's pride, whether it's, you know, whatever the issue is, anger, short temperature, whether it's that diet and exercise stuff, maybe it's the outward stuff, the outward appearance that we're going to talk about tonight. But what I want you to do is weigh the biblical evidence and talk with the Lord and let him do the changing. Does that make sense? Okay, so as we go, and that's the spirit we want to go into tonight, is that this isn't picking on anybody, it's just simply giving some Bible truth about a topic that's not often talked about, but the Word of God does say some stuff, so I want to expose you to the information and let you and the Lord have a conversation. But before we begin tonight, as always, we need to begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you so much for being a God who loves us enough to make us in the first place and then sending your only Son to buy us back when we rebelled against you and your law. And now, Lord, as we look into practical living, like diet and exercise, like apparel, like all the different things that go into making up a Christian representative of your character, Lord, help us to see Jesus more clearly, and as we focus on Jesus, help us to become more like him inside and out, so that when people see us, they see a little glimpse of heaven on earth. Lord, we can't do this on our own. We ask for the guidance of your Holy Spirit, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us begin in the book of Genesis. Of course, beginning in the book of Genesis is always a good idea, because it's the book of beginnings. It's where everything begins. In Genesis chapter 1, we've seen this passage several times, but I want to go back to it. Page 1 in your pew Bible, Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 26. 
We go back to this passage because it's the original template. It's the original Eden ideal that God had in store for humanity. Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 26, we get to eavesdrop on the Lord having a conversation with himself about his final act of the creation week. Then God said, let us make what? Man. And how should he make man? In our image. He's going to, we're going to make something like us. Let us make man in our image. It doesn't say anything for the rest of the creation week. Then God said, let us make birds in our image. No. Let us make animals. No. But he comes to man. He said, let us make man in our image. In our likeness. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man's original state was one of innocence and purity and Christ-likeness. Because again, remember, when God said, let us make man, it was God's plan, but it was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who executed that plan. So it was Jesus who formed us in the dust of the ground and breathed into us the breath of life. And in some way, we were to be a reflection of his character, his image here on earth. Okay? Now, of course, God was the creator. He was the owner. But man was supposed to be the operator. We were supposed to stand in the place and represent him in this world. Let us make man in our image. Now, chapter 2 gives us more detail about how that creating of man in his own image took place. Again, the man was created first, and then out of the man, the woman was created. And we can go here to verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be what? Alone. By the way, that's a little trivia fact. Not everything was good initially during the creation week. The only thing that was not good was when man was alone. That was the, and it was only because it was incomplete. Okay? It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. And you would imagine, after he says that in verse 18, he said, then out of the ground the Lord God formed a woman. But that doesn't what he do. He recognizes the problem. He says it's not good. But then he starts forming these other things and bringing them to the man. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would what? Call them or name them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. It's interesting. It almost implies that he was looking. And here come this, you know, wonderful, you know, rhinoceros pair. He's like, well, good for them, but I'm alone. (laughs) Here comes this great big tall giraffe pair. Well, good for them, but I'm alone. Dogs and cats, all in pairs. And he's looking. It's like, well, maybe the next one, the Lord, and I don't know if the Lord had him behind a shrub or something and and brought them out. And it's like, and the next one is, and he's like, oh, this one's going to be, nope, platypus. You know, oh, the next one's going to be, nope, hippopotamus. That does not fit me. You know, elephant comes in. And As the day wears on, he realizes what God knew all along. It is not good for the man to be alone, right? Now, and the Lord God, verse 21, 
caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the place in his flesh, up the flesh in his place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he brought into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. <sighs> now, Richard, Genesis 1 again. He said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And only a them can properly represent an us, right? Only a they can represent an our. It takes a plural. And so it was not good for man to be alone, but when the woman comes, ah, oh, right? And the Lord apparently uh, allows Adam to see his need, and Adam recognizes his need. He recognizes the fulfillment of that need, and he says, well, notice he doesn't say to her. Sometimes you get this picture that he starts waxing eloquent and giving love poetry to her, but this is not speaking to her. You never speak to your wife and say, this, speaking of her, that's, I mean, I've tried it. It's not good. You don't, you don't do that, right? This is now bone of my bones and flesh. He's evaluating it. Ah, this is not a rhinoceros. Oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> you, you did well here. This one, this one corresponds to me. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my She shall be what? Called woman. He, he brings her to, everything has been brought to her, and he's like, ah, this one corresponds. Oh, and it's the most beautiful thing. She should be called woman. And why does he give her that name? Because she was taken out of man. It's the cheesiest line of all. She completes me. Right? They come together. Oh, beautiful. Therefore, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become what? One flesh. Just like God said, there's one God who says, let us. Now there's one humanity of female and male, and notice what it says about them. Now we always read that, and we somehow skip verse 25. But it's right there. And they were both what? See, we don't even like saying it out loud in church. Like, they were both... <coughs> they were both naked. The man and his wife, and were not what? Ashamed. Now, does this mean that they had absolutely no covering on them whatsoever? Later on, we're going to see that they realize a vulnerability and start covering up, right? But for right now, everything in their Edenic original state is pure and beautiful and wonderful, and they're made in the image of God. By the way, have you ever wondered, how does God dress himself? Well, let's go and see what the Bible says. Psalm 104. Psalm 104, page 576 in your pew Bible. 104, page 576 in your pew Bible. Psalm 104, starting with verse 1. The psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed. Well, that will be interesting to see what follows that, right? What is he clothed with? With honor and majesty, okay? Now, how do you wear honor and majesty? What is it? I mean, those are inward qualities, right? That's a character trait. Someone who's honorable, that's a character trait. But it goes on to say in verse 2, you cover yourself with what? Light as a garment who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. Apparently he covers himself in light as a garment, and we were made in his image. And they had the character of Christ within, and apparently it shone without as garments of light. And we know that something 
like that must have been the case because when they lost their innocence and their purity, when they violated the law of God, when they rebelled against his commands, all of a sudden the scriptures, well, let's just see what happened to them when that happened. Go back to Genesis 3 now. Genesis chapter 3. After the interaction in verses 1 through 6 with this serpent who is more cunning than any of the beasts of the field the Lord God had made, the man and his wife both eat of the fruit of the tree. Now, let's go to verse 4, in fact. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be what? Open. You're going to see new things, right? And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eyes and desirable to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate. She also gave her husband who were with her, and he ate. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were, what? Open. He didn't tell a complete falsehood. They did have a new realization. They saw things in a new way, right? The eyes of both of them were open. And then it says, and they knew that they were naked. Apparently, they were naked before, but had no concept of it, at least no shameful concept of it. But now that they've rebelled, something falls away. They're incredibly vulnerable. They feel exposed. They realize that they are now naked. That innocence, that purity is gone, that they are outside of the covering of God's grace, that they are no longer those obedient children of God. And notice what it says here. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And what's their very first response to that nakedness? And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves what? Coverings. So now instead of that covering that they had had before of light, now they have to say, uh-oh, and we now have to fend for ourselves. They start putting fig leaves together and, and put together this clothing. They clothe themselves. Now, what I find fascinating is the Lord does not find their fig leaf coverings sufficient. In fact, when he comes and speaks to them, we continue on in chapter 3. And it says here, verse 21, what the Lord does. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of what? Skin and clothed them. Tunics of skin. Now, was it because the fig leaves were falling apart and they were transparent and that was... No. That's the issue. The fig leaves they crafted for themselves to cover up for their own lack of purity, their own disgrace, their own shame and rebellion. And notice here he gives them tunics of skin. These are not tunics of wool where you can just, you know, clip it off the outside. This takes a sacrifice. This represents putting on... Christ, of course, all the lambs of sacrifice represent Jesus Christ, right? And his innocence needs to clothe their defilement, his purity, their shame. So apparently in the original, they were created in the image of God and that inward character, just like their heavenly father, manifested in this outward glory, this, this beautiful robe of, of righteousness, this purity, this, this light, just like God wraps himself in light as a garment. But then they realize that they're naked, and it falls away, and they have to cover themselves, put fig leaves together. And the Lord God says, no, 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 that's not good enough. You can't cover yourself from this. 
And so he provides tunics of skin, the strong implication being something had to die to retain that covering. They have to put on a robe, a tunic of skin that they avoided from themselves, representing, of course, Jesus Christ and the restoration to the image of Christ that he has in store for them. Of course, Revelation 13.8, this is why we see in that passage where it references Jesus as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That lamb represents Jesus, and he's going to envelop us in his righteousness and bring us back to that Eden ideal once again. Now, Galatians 3.27, I want to highlight this passage. The Apostle Paul picks up on this, putting on of Christ, almost as though a garment. Galatians chapter 3, it's going to be page 11.22 in your pew Bible. Verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on, what? Christ. In the same way that mortal must put on immortality and corruption must put on incorruption, here sinner must put on the sacrifice. Just like Adam and Eve had to wear the tunics of skin, Christians should put on Christ-likeness to cover our deficiency, and thus we will go around and be like Jesus. So let's go down to our our fill-in-the-blanks, and let's build this case here. Apparently, Adam and Eve's inward character shone forth in outward light or glory. They had a covering, just like the Father has, of light as as of a garment. Their remedy for nakedness was to clothe themselves with what? Leaves, right? To clothe themselves. They started to dress themselves. Originally, they were dressed in a Christ-like image, so they were naked, but they were covered by this purity, this garment of light. That falls away, and now they have to clothe themselves, and they pick up leaves, and they start sewing themselves something to wear. But God was dissatisfied with that. God's remedy for their nakedness was to clothe them in skins. They went with leaves. They could just pick up off the tree and sew them together. And God said, that's not good enough. You clothing yourself isn't going to cover the real shame. You need something greater. You need something, a sacrifice. And, of course, all of those point forward to Jesus Christ. Now, let's go to page 1091, Romans chapter 8. I believe that that covering with skins in the Garden of Eden is... Obviously, by the way, those skins, does not, that, whoever those skins, those tunics that the Lord God made, that does not make them holy. But it's a symbol of the holiness of Jesus that they need to put on, right? All of the sacrifices are symbols or types pointing to Jesus, a shadow leading up to the substance that is Jesus Christ. And, of course, that's what God wants to do for us is not just dress us up like Jesus or put on Jesus' covering, but actually conform us, refashion us, transform us back in to that original Eden ideal of Christ-likeness. We were made in his image, and I believe the whole purpose of the gospel is to restore us to that image of Jesus. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. Scripture tells us, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Okay, so God's destined for a destination for our lives. The trajectory that he wants us, the course he wants us to follow, ends up at this point. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to what? To the image of his Son, 
That is God's plan for every human being is to be restored or conformed, transformed into the image of Jesus. Of course, the image of Jesus is what we were originally made in, right? Let us make man how? In our image. And it was Jesus who did the molding. So the goal of the gospel is simply to restore us into the image of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians. Let's continue with this. 2 Corinthians, just keep going to the right, page 1113. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now help me out again. What does glory always uh, equate to in Scripture? Character. Thank you very much. Glory always equals character. And as we behold Jesus... Are we looking at the raw, unmasked, unveiled glory of God when we look at the face of Jesus? No, we're looking at his humanity that was garbed, right? It was clothed. But when we see Jesus, we're seeing a reflection of the Father. Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Of course, the Father says, no one can see my face and live, but I'll show you me in my Son. And as we look at Jesus, we contemplate his life, we focus on his character, We are looking like a mirror at the image of God, at the glory of God, the character of the Father. Again, verse 18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being, what's that word? Into what? The same image. Again, as we gaze at Jesus, we start to become more like Jesus. It's a very simple spiritual principle. By beholding, you become changed. You stare at something long enough, you emulate, you start to act out, you start to fashion yourself, consciously or otherwise, you just start to become like that thing that you focus on. And if you focus on Jesus Christ, you learn about him, you witness for him, you start living a life according to the principles of his word, all of a sudden you start becoming more and more like him. right? And notice how this process works. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being. Now, that's not, that's not an event language. That's process language. Being. Okay? Transformed into the same image from glory to what? So you about with this amount of glory, and then you go on to higher ground and broader vistas and better glory and, and get more and more and more like Jesus. From glory to glory, from character to character, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So the Spirit of the Lord doesn't want you simply to confess Jesus Christ and be saved. He's like, great, now claim onto that, hang on to that claim of Jesus being your Savior and then transform into Christ-likeness. Again, I cannot reiterate this enough. The Bible paints a picture of salvation that's not merely a transaction, but a transformation. Not only you to claim Jesus, but you start to become like Jesus. The more you study him, the more you ponder him, the more you pray, the more you witness, the more you share, the more you become like Jesus from glory to glory. That's exactly, by the way, what we see further to the right in 1 John chapter 3. Oh, I'm sorry, 2 Peter. Let's go there first. 2 Peter, page 1165, 2 Peter chapter 1. Right there at the very, very bottom of page 1165, right there in the bottom right corner, we start with verse 2. 
here, the second epistle of Peter, he welcomes and greets these people with these words. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by, by glory and virtue, virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of what? The divine nature. Notice the promise of God is not to receive just a pardon, but also to become partakers of his very nature, to become more like Jesus. Again, verse 4, by which have been given to us exceedingly great precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So it's almost like we're going out of the world and coming more and more like Jesus and his word. We're being changed in his image. Now, 1 John chapter 3. Just hair over to the right, 1 John chapter 3. We've looked at these verses before. Beloved, verse 2, now we are what? Children of God. And, so in addition to being a child of God, apparently he wants more than just you to be claiming a child of God, to be called his. Now you are a child of God, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be what? Please note, once again, it nowhere says we shall be made like him when he is revealed. But when he is revealed, if we're a child of God now, as we continue to walk in him, we become more and more like him, so that when he he is revealed, he returns, we are correspondingly in the same harmony with him. We are like him. And of course, we know this because we shall see him as he is. And thus, it gives this encouragement in verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in him does what? Purifies himself. To what extent? Just as he is pure. So again, the goal of the Christian life is not just to be called good, but through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, to be made, remade, refashioned, retooled into the very image of God. We were created in the image of Jesus Christ, and the goal of salvation is to return us, to restore us to that image, that purity of character. Are we with together so far? Okay, now, Second Peter, one more time. Second Peter chapter 3. Just turn back to the left, starting with verse 10. Second Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 10. As it looks closer and closer to that great day, notice the, what's on the mind of, by the way, we've seen it in Paul's writings, we've seen it in John's writings, and now we're going to see it in Peter's writings. The same theme emerges. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. But the day of the Lord might come. Is that what, it, what does it say in your Bible? Will come. He's not equivocating on this. It will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. You see that word will over and over and over? 
He's saying this is a definite, absolute guarantee. Jesus is coming again. Now, he follows it up with verse 11. Therefore, or in light of the fact that this second coming of Jesus is a real event, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what's the burden on his heart? What questions does he have? What manner of persons ought you to be in what? Holy conduct and godliness. As you look forward to Jesus coming, the question on your mind should not be, do I have enough canned goods stored up? Have I dug a deep enough hole? Do I have enough water to get me through? Uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. The issue, the preparation for Jesus' return is character development to be like Jesus himself. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? It's a powerful thought. In fact, it continues saying, looking for, and watch this now. What's that next word? Hastening. What does it mean to hasten something? To hurry it up, to make it come faster, to speed the process along. Ooh. Is it possible that the Lord is not waiting for a day on the calendar, but he's waiting for a ripe harvest? Mm. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, according to his promise, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And again, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. By the way, without spot and blemish, that's how the sacrifices were supposed to be presented before the Lord, right? Peter picks up on that language. The Apostle Paul, by the way, does the same thing in Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, brethren, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. Far more than simply a transaction, the Lord is looking for a transformation that will fit us into that society of heaven. Now, what in the world does this have to do with our outward clothing? Now, we started off with, okay, we're dressed in a garb of light, Right? This righteousness, this purity of character, and all of a sudden we sin, we rebel, it falls away, we start to cover ourselves with fig leaves. But Christ says, no, 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 that's not good enough. You need to put on this robe of sacrifice, a robe of righteousness, right? which points forward to Jesus Christ. The whole sacrificial process is to point forward to not just someone dying in our place, but we should be clothed in that, and that Christ-likeness should be manifest and developed from glory to glory in our own lives, so we become a living sacrifice for Jesus Christ. We're to be remade into that image. Now, here's the simple premise. I want to be, in my Christian walk, more and more like Jesus and less and less like Satan. That's a pretty simple premise, right? My goal is to look unto the author and finisher of my faith who is going to complete the work within me, and when he comes, I want to be just like him. Okay? So I want to purify myself even as he is pure. I'm going to walk from glory to glory to be transformed, not conformed, and I'm going to be like Jesus instead of being like Satan, his enemy. So when it comes to how we carry ourselves on the outside, how we... Uh, how we adorn ourselves, how we make our appearance known to the outside world, if the Bible has anything to say, I want to see what Jesus is most like 
and I want to go at least what Satan is like. Is that clear? Okay, so my goal is to be more like Jesus and less like Satan. Hopefully that's our goal with everything, anything in the Christian walk. Think, now, which would Jesus be more okay with, and which would Satan want me to do more? And stay away from the Satan thing and walk closer to the Jesus thing. Clear? Okay, now, let's bring this home a little bit more. Did you know, by the way, let me tell you this, I have worked for several years. I've taught school for eight years. Believe it or not, I've been a pastor now for 13 years. I know, it looks like I'm just 15 years old. How is it possible? But it is the case that I have, I've been around this work, and especially working with young people, and older people too, but especially working with young people, there's a certain amount of like policy in just rules that you can just you know shut your mouth and cope and deal with and just suck it up and go forward. But at some point, you don't actually buy into a policy unless you understand the principle behind it. Okay? So one of the things that I've seen the most tension in my ministry with, not for me personally, but I've witnessed it around, especially in a school setting, an academic setting, is there will be policies enforced, which I'm fine with the policies, policies, but the issue is not the policy, but the enforcement of the policy without a clear explanation of the principle behind the policy, Right? Instead of saying, here's why you should do, it's just, here's what you should do. And if you ask people to do what, without explaining why, they get really, really bitter. By the way, and you mix that with, you know, a 16, 17, 18-year-old's hormones, and they're just angry all the time. So you put, you know, this disconnect between policy and principle with the inherent kind of like, and all of a sudden, we're surprised when young people are frustrated. No, 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 no. What I want to do in everything that we do is present what are the policies, but not just what does the Word of God say. For instance, when we could talk about adornment, we could go straight to some texts that say, you know, don't, let, don't wear gold, don't wear these flashy clothes, don't wear this stuff, and the, thus say it the Word of God. And you could say, okay, I see that, but why does it say that? I have no interest in having you conform to something just because I say so or because it's a policy of the church. I want you to see because it's a principle of God's Word and let you and he work that out together, okay? So my goal tonight, and hopefully every night, has been to articulate the principles and then bring it to policy. See the big picture and then land it in the practical application. Are we on the same page? Okay. I'll take your abject silences. Yes, we're with you, Pastor. Good. (laughs) Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. We're going to go back to some of the original passages we looked at in the beginning of this entire series. And I'm going to show you a little bit more than what we've looked at previously. Now, what was Lucifer's job in the courts of heaven? According to verse 14, by the way, the, the, if you want to, on your note there, the first passage we're looking up is 2814. So you want to scribble that out and say 2814. That's where we're going to go first. That's right, he was anointed to what position? Covering cherub, right? It says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. And again, that, that smacks of the, uh, of the covering cherub on the Ark of the Covenant, right? That typifies that right-hand man, that soldier of God, that messenger of the Lord who serves at his right hand. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you, or I appointed you. Some versions even say, for so I ordained you. This concept that he was an ordained 
minister, a leader among the angel hosts in the courts of God. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. He was right there in the heart of the action. God had set him apart for this great work. Now, in line with that job came a special uniform. Some of you might have jobs where you wear a uniform. I've had to have jobs where we, in fact, I'm kind of wearing one right now. Um, But, you know, you work at a pizza place and they expect you to wear their logo. You work for this other place and they expect you to wear their logo. If you go across the street to the other pizza place, they don't want you wearing that other logo. They want you in this logo, right? If you have what Every job has its uniform that you wear that goes along with it for the most part. This job apparently came with a very specific, very unique, that very extravagant, if you want to use that word. I don't know if extravagance is the right word, but it was quite ornate. It was a very splendid uniform. Let's go back now and go to verse 12. Let's see the beginning of this introduction to Lucifer. Chapter 28 and verse 12. Now, I want you to be clear about this. Satan never really shows up as himself when he comes to the Garden of Eden as a serpent, you know, and uh, in the courts of heaven he uses deception to get his way. He never says the whole honest truth. When he comes to Jesus, he, he's an angel of light, right? And he always uses the power as a front man. Even in prophecy, he has the Antichrist to do his bidding for him, right? And here, at this point in history, it was the king of Tyre, But here the lamentation is written to the king of Tyre, but it's quite clear that he's talking about the power behind the power. The power behind the king of Tyre, because the context makes that clear. Again, chapter 28 and verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, thus says the Lord God. You were the seal, and now we're talking about clearly Lucifer here. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in what other area? Beauty. Let me ask you a question. Was Satan ugly? No. Apparently he was not only wise, but he was beautiful. Okay? You were in Eden, verse 13 continues, the garden of God, notice this, every precious stone was your what? The sardius, topaz, and emerald or the sardius, topaz, and diamond, the beryl, onyx, and jasper, the sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. Let me ask you something. Ever think about this? Did Lucifer wear jewelry? Absolutely. Covered with it. Apparently all set in gold, had all these beautiful precious stones on him. Now, is that what every angel wears? I'm going to make a guess that says no. And I'll give you some biblical reason for it. But his particular job, his particular position, required this particular uniform. Okay? Again, every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes. You get this idea of his voice being just something. Was prepared for you on the day you were created. Apparently, the Lord had in mind for this being a dynamic, splendid, gorgeous, wise, melodic, and regally adorned minister in his courts. Supposed to be full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. He had all these ornaments on. 
and he had this voice, these pipes, and apparently from the day he was created, that was what his plan was. And I, and I can't help but think back to Jeremiah, where the Lord says to him, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, right? And I have set you apart as a, as a prophet to the nations. He's like, I've had a plan for you ever since the day you were created. And that's what Lucifer had. The Lord had a plan for him. And again, in verse 14, it says what that plan was. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. Now, what I want you to see is this every precious stone adorning. Because you can look at that and say, well, look. God himself put jewelry on this guy. Why is it bad to wear it? Is it bad? Is it good? Is that something we should emulate? He obviously had no problem with it in the courts of heaven. Well, I'm going to differ and say, apparently this one being had this uniform, not for his person, but for his position. And let me show you a biblical evidence for that. Go back to the book of Exodus. Go back to the book of Exodus. Chapter 28, so we went from Ezekiel 28 to Exodus 28. Way back in page 78 in your pew Bible, Exodus chapter 28. Of course, as you recall, the book of Exodus is exactly that. It's the book of the children of Israel coming out or exiting the land of Egypt. And they go through the Red Sea and they come to the Mount Sinai. And the Lord in Exodus chapter 20 gives them his Ten Commandment law. Then in chapter 25, he starts giving the instructions for the sanctuary. And here in chapter 28, he now sets apart the ordained ministers, the priests of God, not, on, not in heaven, but on earth. Okay, Exodus chapter 28, let's start with verse 1. Now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from the, amongst the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as what? Priest. Okay, that he may minister to me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar, and you shall make holy, what? Garments. The very first thing he's like, you and your sons are going to be priests to me, and the very first thing we're going to talk about is what you wear when you come to this job. Holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and for what was their purpose for these special garments? It says this right here. For glory and for beauty. They were specifically told to make these beautiful garments because of the job the Lord was going to put them in charge of, okay? For, for glory and for beauty. Now let's go down to verse 40. We'll see this re- repeated again. For Aaron's sons you shall make tunics, and you shall make sashes for them, and you shall make hats for them. So everything about this outfit was for what purpose? For glory and beauty. It was supposed to be beautiful. Okay? But notice here, glory, which always represents character, and beauty are synonymously linked. For glory and for beauty. So the character is supposed to shine out in a beautiful way. right? And apparently their clothing was supposed to be an outward representation of that inward purity of character. In their job, they were supposed to represent the highest of Christian standards and ideals, and their clothing was supposed to be made for holiness, for glory, and for beauty. Now, let's go back in chapter 28 still, back up to verse 15. I want you to see the particulars, because remember the Lord was very particular about every piece of furniture, about every room, about every detail, and when it came down to these priest's clothes, he didn't just say, now go make something real pretty. He says, I'll show you how I want this beauty to look. 
Now look at verse 15, Exodus 28, verse 15. You shall make the breastplate of judgment. Okay, it's literally a plate of gold, right? Now, artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen you shall make it. It shall be doubled into a square. A span shall be its length, and a span shall be its width. So it was a square plate that they had hanging on their chest, a breastplate. And notice this, verse 17. Somebody did that sound familiar. And you shall put settings of stones in it, four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius and a topaz and an emerald. This shall be the first row. The second row shall be a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jathanth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. Almost to the word, to the letter, identical for this appointed priest on earth in these settings of gold are these precious jewels as to what Lucifer wore in heaven in his position as anointed cherub who covers. Okay? And on earth it tells us why they had that for beauty, for holiness, for, for glory and for beauty. Right? But what happened here? Well, we'll keep going now. Verse 36. What is it all supposed to represent? Verse 36. I think this is fascinating. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. All of this regalia, all of this outfit, all of this garment, from the hat to the, to the clothing, it's supposed to be the finest threads, the most beautiful things, these precious stones in plates of gold, and on his forehead, on, the, on this hat, it's supposed to simply say, holiness to the Lord. These garments were made for glory and for beauty. So when you put these things on, you're not like, hey, look at how pretty I... No. <laughs> right? You're supposed to be the embodiment of the glory of the Lord. So that when people see you, they get a slight picture of how beautiful the Lord's glory looks. Right? Now, take that back to Ezekiel chapter 28. Take it back to Ezekiel 28. Apparently... In the courts of heaven, Lucifer was entrusted with a job very similar to this. He was supposed to represent the character of God, and his outfit, his garments, were merely an outward reflection of the inward character of God. And, it, and just like the earthly priest, it sh should shine forth in a big sign that says, Holiness to the Lord. But what happened? Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 17. Watch what happens here. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Now, Jesus is supposed to be lifted up because of his beauty, right? But what happened is instead of taking all that praise and giving it to the Father, he's like, well, why don't I just take some of this for me? You know? And you can imagine, he's like, you know what? They are right. I am pretty. You know? I mean, let's not kid around. I was made for this job. <laughs> You know, you literally think of, like, I was made for this job. He was literally made for this job. Everything about him was supposed to be, uh, he was supposed to be the 
reflection, the high, the type A, the acme of what God can do in a created being. Look at this. And when you see this, you should see a glimpse of the character of the God who made him, right? You're supposed to look at the creature and say, oh man, what a marvelous creator. But instead, he was like, yeah, but why don't you just take a little extra time and look at the creature some more? Your heart was lifted up. Because of your beauty, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your what? Splendor. I laid you before kings. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Apparently, all of this outer beauty that God had entrusted to him so that it could be a representation of the inward beauty of God went to his head. And we already saw that in Isaiah chapter 14. He's like, I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will be sit on the throne of the uh, congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will be like what? The most high. He's like, he's dressed me up like this. Maybe it's fitting. I should, you know, he starts letting it soak in and go to his head. According to Scripture, that was the click that started him down this path of I, I, I. Now, let me ask you, these things that he was adorned in, these gold and these jewels, are they inherently evil things? Is there anything bad with gold? No. As a metal, it's not like, ooh, it's, it's not like kryptonite or something like that. It'll weaken you or some silliness nonsense like that, right? Jasper, onyx, sapphire, turquoise, emerald, jacinth, agathis, onyx, all of these things are beautiful. That's the whole point they're supposed to be beautiful. They're beautiful things that should point to the beauty of the creator. Right? But he started to say, no, 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 instead of def- using this, to, def- I am going to bring glory to myself. That was the cause of the downfall. Now, let's counteract that with the beauty of Christ. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. When it looks forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, the inspired author here uses some language I'm not sure I would use. But of course he was inspired, so of course that's what the Lord told him to use. But it's interesting, of all the things you could say about the coming Jesus, would you describe him this way? Again, let's start with verse 2. Isaiah chapter 53, starting with verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of what? Now, I've seen plants before, and the pretty part is the stuff out of the ground, right? Like, the, that's where the flower is, and all the beautiful leaves, and the green, and the... But the roots? And especially if you have a root kind of sticking up out of dry ground. And you can imagine, it's like, the Son of God is coming, and he'll be like a root out of dry ground. He'll be like this. That's not really inspiring. In fact, it goes on to say, he has no form or comeliness. Some versions say he has no beauty. That we should desire. In fact, it's very, very nice. And when we see him, he had, there is no beauty that we should desire him. 
You know, when Jesus came, it's fascinating to me that he had to, remember when he came to John the Baptist to be baptized? The crowd didn't just automatically part because there was this great shiny shaft of light and he was just walking around in this splendid, just regal beauty. I'm not going to do the walk, it's embarrassing, but, you know, people didn't just look at him and be like, oh, well, look at him, he must be the Son of God, just look at him. Of course not. It took John the Baptist saying, hey, that's the Lamb of God. And you notice he has to do it twice. The first time he does it, Jesus kind of slips away in the crowd a little bit. And people are like, where? Where'd he go? I just see a guy. And when Jesus gets baptized, then the Holy Spirit has to light a dove on him, the lights on him like a dove, and the Father says, this is my beloved son. He has to, like, point him out. I'm guessing if Lucifer came down in his regalia, you'd just kind of know. Right? But Jesus Christ, when he came to this earth, didn't come to be the most beautiful. That wasn't his mission. That wasn't his objective. Now, it doesn't go out of the way and say he was objectively ugly and he was horrid looking. No, it doesn't say that. He just, there wasn't in him an outward beauty that people would be drawn to him. You don't come to Jesus because he's the prettiest thing. You come to Jesus because he's the purest thing. goes on. How did people accept him? Well, they didn't. Verse 3. He is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Jesus was not always the most popular. In fact, there's, an, there's a fascinating thing in John chapter 6. We, do, we don't have time to go there, but in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and oh, and he's doing shiny, wonderful things for them and giving them bread and making them happy and feeding their tummies. Oh, they love him. The next day, they come and find him, and Jesus says, all right, no more bread today. All you get is me. And all went home. It got so bad, and this is an easy text to remember, in John 6, 66. He has to turn to his core 12. Now, the same 5,000 plus men and, uh, women and children who were there from the day before are now here this next day, and they've all left. And it gets so bad that he has to turn around to his core 12 and say, are you guys leaving too? And again, of course, it's Peter who speaks up. <laughs> and I don't know if it's a great answer or not. He's like, well, where else are we going to go? <laughs> no, I mean... You're the only one who's giving us the words of life. Of course, he understood that Jesus was the true source, but he's like, well, you're the only game in town. You're the only one, right? It's interesting. Jesus did not come to be the most popular, the most beautiful, the most respected, the most honorable. He came to be the most Christ-like, to be the most godly. Philippians chapter 2, let's follow this up. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, page 1130, chapter 2, and verse 5. Here the Apostle Paul urges us in verse 5, let this mind be where? In you, which was also where? All right, so we should think, we should act, we should behave like Jesus. Our attitude, our outlook should be like Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to define what that is. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus was quite confident in who he was. 
Therefore, he didn't have to show off and flex and grasp at it and be like, hey, hey, by the way, I don't know if you caught that, but I'm the son of God. Do you see that? Hi. I don't know if anybody's talking about it, but I'll just tell you, I am from above. You know, I just wanted you to know. He was never out there, like, literally tooting his own horn or, 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 or talking himself up or trying to get a good... Re- he wasn't in it for reputation. He could let that go because he knew who he was. You'll notice the older you get, the more comfortable you are in your own skin, typically. It's one of the fascinating things about working with young people. They're so perpetually insecure. They want to look like this and be like that and act like that. And, oh, if, the, if these pair of jeans are in this week, all of this is in, they got to always constantly feel. And by the time you get older, you're just like, I don't care. <laughs> it, because you are who you are. And Jesus Christ had an identity that he was the Son of God. He didn't have to show it off. He didn't have to flex it. He didn't have to spread word. He was what he was. It's fascinating. He goes on to say, and apparently that mind should be in us. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of what? No reputation. Now, compare that to Lucifer. Lucifer wanted a huge reputation. He wanted to be the big man on campus, the well-known one, the beautiful one, right? And Jesus comes along and is like, ah, don't worry about it, I'll just be nice to people. And it's not what they were expecting as a king, right? They were expecting flash and pomp and circumstance. And Jesus is all just, you know, talking with children. It was weird from earth's perspective. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. Furthermore, it continues, and being found in appearance as a man... So he didn't come as a king in appearance. He just came as a guy, as a man, in his appearance. He, what's that next word? Humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has also, also has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Fascinating. If you ever want to do this, compare Philippians chapter 2 with Ezekiel chapter 28. I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 14. Ezekiel 28 does the same thing, but more clearly you see it. In Isaiah 14, you see the character of Lucifer, and then you read Philippians chapter 2, the character of Christ. In Isaiah 14, I will ascend, I will exalt, I will raise my throne above, I will be like the Most High. And the next verse says, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Philippians chapter 2, Jesus is in the very form of God. He has every right to be worshipped as God. Yet knowing that he's confident to step down and humble himself and lower and lower and become obedient, even to the point of death, even the death of the cross, But therefore, because he's willing to obey and be obedient and humble himself and not be about reputation, not be about outward beauty, not be about the big man on campus, to be humble and be a servant, therefore, God has exalted him. In Satan's quest to go up, 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 it results in him going down. Christ's willingness to put self aside and go down, 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 results in him being exalted above every name. This is why Jesus is going to say, in the kingdom of God, the first shall be last. 
And the last shall be first. It's not about pushing yourself forward. It's not about self at all. It's about selflessness. It's about others. And the character, of course, of Lucifer is all about self. What can I get for me? And Jesus Christ is what can I give for others? It's two different principles that manifest in the behavior and the life. Now, let's go to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. It's fascinating to me that, again, whenever the church is described in prophecy, it's given the, uh, the metaphor. It employs the metaphor or the analogy of a woman, the symbol of a woman. Woman is representative of the church. And, of course, there's in Revelation, like there are so many things, there's the true church, and then there's Satan's counterfeit church. Notice the difference between these two. Now, again, this is picture language. I don't think that there is a giant woman standing on the moon with stars. Right here. This is picture language, but it's trying to put a picture in your head of ideas and principles. Revelation chapter 12, look at verse 1. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman, and notice what it talks about, her clothing. Clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head a garland of 12 stars. What is she clothed with? All those things are what? Light. Just like in the beginning, just like God is wrapped himself in a garment of light. This is purity. This, by the way, all these things are God-given. Sun, moon, and stars, right? It's clothed in natural beauty, simplicity, of character that represents and reflects the glory of God. Now, let's compare and contrast that with Revelation chapter 17 and look at verse 4, the counterfeit. When, the, uh, when God wants to put a picture in our head of what bad looks like, he uses this language. The woman, this is the false church now, the Antichrist power, was arrayed. That's another word for clothed, dressed as, right? So it starts off, both women are dressed. And there's this one woman, and this one woman, the very first thing it says about them is how they're dressed, what they're wearing. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a cup a golden cup full of the abominations, the filthiness and the, of, for, of her fornication. And on her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. If you recall, in Exodus chapter 28, the high priest who was supposed to wear this ornate stuff was supposed to have a thing in all capital letters that says, Holiness to the Lord. This person wears all this stuff, and instead of holiness to the Lord, it's their own name. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. It's taking these things that God had originally given as a beautiful thing, a reminder of his glory, and bringing them to yourself and showing and flexing for yourself. And when the Bible wants to describe a faithful church, it says it doesn't do that. It describes a woman clothed naturally with God-given things, covered in light, which is a representation of inward purity, shining out an external light. In counter to that, you have Revelation chapter 17 with a, an adulterous woman, an unfaithful church. It says that one's decked out in all these rich colors and all these gold and jewels. 
and glory is going to itself. It's interesting the Bible prophecy uses that language to describe the faithful and the unfaithful church. By the way, go to page 873 in your pew Bible. This is not the first time in the Bible when this metaphor has been employed. It's also in the Old Testament. Actually, there's several times, multiple times in the Old Testament. Why don't we show you this one in particular? Hosea, chapter 2, page 873 in your pew Bible. Hosea, chapter, uh, chapter 2, in verse 13. Now, as you're finding that, let me tell you, the least, perhaps the least enviable, I don't know, Isaiah was sawn in two, and that's no good. And Jeremiah, you read through the entire book of Jeremiah, and I can't find recorded even one time where even one person repented or confessed or changed of heart because of his ministry. Okay. They had some pretty bad experiences in ministry. But Hosea's job was to act out in his life what it would be like to be God married to unfaithful Israel. So he said, Hosea, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go marry someone. He's like, oh, good. Marry a prostitute. Wow, what? <laughs> I want you to go marry an adulterous, unfaithful, fornicating woman. He's like, I, I don't want to do that, Lord. She's not going to be faithful to me. He's like, that's my point. Now you'll know what it's like to be me. And you're going to act out in your life what it's like to be me. It's interesting. Now, Hosea chapter 2 and verse 13. Here the Lord is speaking of his bride, the church, right? The, his people. And he personifies Israel over and over, by the way. Both Old and New Testament, you see the corporate people of God from the, from the perspective of God personified or anthropomorphized as a woman. Just like you saw in the New Testament, the woman with wearing this or the woman wearing that. In the Old Testament, you used to say things. You'd say he would talk about his faithful bride, Israel, right? But also, it says in verse 13 here, I will punish her for the days of the bales to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But she, me, she forgot, says the Lord. That's interesting. He's like, he's comparing me to the faithful one and her to this adulterous one. And how does she go get under men? She starts decking herself out and this clothes and jewels and all this kind of stuff, exactly like you see in Revelation chapter 17. When it wants to show an image of what bad looks like, it dresses it up in a way that you're like, aha, that's not good. That's bad. Now, let's look at some practical biblical examples. Genesis chapter 35, where does all this land? What does this look like in the real life, the Christian life? Genesis chapter 35, verse 1, page 34 in your pew Bible. Here Jacob, who would later be called Israel and whose sons would be all the children of Israel, but he's still just Jacob at this point, has been being chased around by his brother and Esau, and they have a bad relationship, and here Esau seems to have uh, well, it's going to be a difficult thing, but here Jacob has a repentance and a revival and a reformation in his own life and in the life of his household, and he's going to lead his family back to a worship of the true God. It says here in verse 1, Genesis 35, Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau your brother. 
And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him. So uh, get this right. He said, the Lord has called him. Go make an altar. Go worship me. Let's get right with God. Let's come back. Now, verse 2. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Now that makes sense. If you're going to write, write with a true God, it's time to put away your idols, right? We're putting all that other rubbish away. Put away the foreign gods who are among you. Purify yourselves and do what? Change your what? Garments. Now, what difference does it make what you wear to go worship God? He said, hey, hey, put away the idols, clean yourself up, and dress right. Go change your garments because we're coming into the presence of a holy God. Now it goes on. Verse 3, then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and, what else? The earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. Did he hide them so they could go find them again? No. He put the earrings right there with the foreign gods, these pagan idols, and he says, here's what we're going to do with them. Let's dig a big hole by this tree, put them in there, bury them, and then go. That's not what you do when you come back to get them. This is leaving it behind, right? He says, we're going to change our, we're going to get right with God. We're going to change our clothes. We're going to clean ourselves up. We're going to leave all the foreign gods, and apparently of their own free will, they took off their earrings, their jewelry, and said, we're going to leave that there too. They want to come to the presence of God and clean Pure, simple holiness. It's interesting. Practical application was seen here. Let's go to another one. Go to Exodus chapter 32. Here the children of Israel are waiting for Moses at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And instead of faithfully pondering and considering the Lord's commands that they had just heard and putting them into practice, they become restless And it says in chapter 32, verse 1, page 83 of your few Bibles, Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Now, Again, this sounds kind of like Jacob's experience. We're going to get right with God, break off your jewelry, bring it to me, right? And here they do, they do a volunteer. He, I mean, he calls for it, and they're willing to do it. goes on. So all the people broke off their golden earrings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and I wish it said, and buried it under a tree. That's not what he did. And he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So, when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. Now, these sound like good godly things to do. Take off your earrings. Let's go build an altar. We're going to have gods before us. It goes on. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to whom? To the Lord. Well, that sounds good, right? You have an altar. You have a feast to the Lord. The people have taken off all the jewelry. It's great. 
problem is they didn't bury it in the ground. They put it before them, and they start worshiping it, right? Verse 6, then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, of course, this is not uh, what the Lord had in mind for them. And as you read the rest of the story, we just simply don't have the time tonight, but the Lord is having this communion with Moses up on the mountain, and all of a sudden, he says, wait, we have to stop. Your people who you brought up out of Egypt have, uh, well, they've strayed. And the anger of the Lord of kindled. Moses comes down the mountain. And look at Moses' reaction to this. Chapter 33. If you go through the rest of 32, it is a mess. They make a royal mess for themselves to the point that Moses gets so angry. Of course, what does he do? He throws down the Ten Commandments and breaks them. Then he takes the golden calf. He doesn't say, oh, this is pretty good work. He grinds it into powder, pours it on the water, and makes the children of Israel drink it. He said, you want it so much? Put it in. Go. Whew. Now, what was the fallout of all this? Chapter 33. What lesson did they learn from this whole experience? Chapter 33, starting with verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your descendants I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. (laughs) He's like, you guys go on up ahead. I need a minute. Go on your way. I'll lead you. I mean, I'll be fine, but I'm not going to be in the midst of you. And they realize, man, we have separated ourselves from our God by rebellion. It must have been the same type of feeling Adam and Eve have. You know, we can no longer have this open communion with the Lord. Verse 4, what's their response? And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one did what? Put on his ornaments. They realized, man, we, we have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and they said, you know what? We need to just simplify and get this glory off of ourselves. We got too big-headed. We went on our way, and they manifested that character of Satan. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that, may, that I may know what to do with you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. And if you go through the rest of the saga of the children of Israel from that point forward, there's no indication that they ever wore those ornaments again. Now, in Scripture, you find jewels and you find finer things used as currency. You find transactions and things with him, but this ornamental wearing for the mere purpose of decorative, bringing glory to yourself, is consistently not shown amongst God's people. In fact, that's with the Old Testament, but now you could say, well, that's the Old Testament, right? That's the mean. But let's look at the New Testament where it's all grace and love and whatever. Let's see that the exact same thing is expected in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 3. And now I'm only comfortable going to these passages once we've seen this much larger context, starting from heaven itself 
way back at the Eden ideal, Lucifer versus Jesus, Old Testament. Now we come to the New Testament. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.